I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Hey, welcome back for another episode, folks. I am glad you are with us. We are in the Christmas season. Doesn't that feel great? You know, if you're like me, you've been uh, stuffed full of, of cookies and hams, and it's it's time to begin that 2022 diet. I'm looking at a couple different gyms and uh, and ready to ready to hit it. I'm actually going to start Exodus 90 here in a couple of weeks with a group of guys. If you haven't done that before, that'll supercharge your spiritual life. Um, an intense sort of 90 days. It's like a double Lent, 90 days getting ready for Easter. You've got fraternity, you've got prayer, and you've got the asceticisms. So for me, with my love for the Christmas cookies, I'm getting ready for the asceticisms, which includes not a whole lot of uh, Christmas cookies. Okay, as we are about to launch into our legislative session begins uh, next week, 38-day legislative session here in South Dakota. We are getting ramped up here at the South Dakota Catholic Conference A lot of exciting topics. Looking forward to bringing you guests in the weeks ahead to talk about all the bills that are coming your way. As we get ready for it, though, I want to return to a perennial theme that we've kind of unpacked on this show. And it kind of comes from John Paul II, Evangelium Vitae, the great pro-life encyclical. One of the things he says in there that's just really stuck, uh, stuck with me is he says the basis for all social policy is family policy. So family is just so, so important. Excited to to welcome on to the program today, the author of a new book, The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies, Scott Yenner, professor of political science at Boise State University, where he teaches political philosophy. We're not going to quite get to the book, um, but we're going to talk about some other kind of recent work in First Things and, and, and some talks. So we're going to talk about family life. Uh, professor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So glad you're here. Um, you know, this is, it's just such an important topic. So whenever I see things, you know, either written word or on YouTube, these great talks that, that are driving at the topic of, um, you know, the, the sexual relationship between men and women, which obviously is the basis for family life, pr- produces children, you've got my attention. And you've, you recently gave um, a talk just on kind of family form and, and what our nation needs, which I found it to be a really compelling talk. One of the things that that you mention at the start of the talk, just by way of diagnosis, if you will, um, is you say androgyny is a threat to family life. Wait, that's right up at the front. Can you say, say a little more about that? Well, yeah, the uh, the principle that uh, guided that talk was that if you're going to have a great nation, you need great families. And great families are communal. Um, they, they're communities of sharing from each according to their needs to each according to their, from each according to their abilities. Yes. And, uh, and, but men and women actually have different abilities. And, uh, and men and women have different virtues and different vices. Hmm. And so how marriage is formed uh, will either emphasize virtues or emphasize vices. Hmm. And uh, the idea that men and women are interchangeable actually leads to uh, leads to families that actually don't have very many kids and don't end up sharing a lot together. So uh, the unique contributions that men and women not only make the procreation, but the family life themselves, uh, it's I should say itself, uh, you know, need to be at the heart of what a form that is uh, an institution uh, that the, the public tries to defend. 
What that means is, you know, like here's some of the characteristics of that institution. It needs to be enduring. It needs to be something that lasts. Mm. Uh, it needs to be something that's fruitful. That is that uh, that gives you know, rise to children, and it needs to be something that raises those children up to honorable adulthood. Yes. And, uh, and it needs to be something that engages both the hearts and minds of the husband and wife. Mm. And, uh, and that means it has to have serious responsibilities. Yes. And uh, so, you know, and the way that we treat family life um, uh, from the perspective of public law will say a lot about whether or not families have serious responsibilities, whether or not they're enduring, whether or not they're communal. And uh, so what I was trying to defend in that speech was the idea that men and women make unique contributions uh, to an institution that is necessary for national thriving and survival even. Well, I, and I love that how you just relate I mean, sometimes we think of these things as just so intimate and personal, and they are obviously who one will choose to marry or not marry. But the connection you draw to our our national life even is very important. One of the things that one of the themes that you unpack as you're as you're critiquing feminism, right, is careerism. You say careerism and easy sex. This is a recipe for national disaster. So, I mean, work is kind of a theme. Can you can you say more about that? Yeah, well, what I mean by careerism is, you know, neither the man nor the woman in a marriage should value their career over the family. That is, you should see your job or the work that we're doing as some, a means to the achievement of family goals. So that it's not that men are independent and out there working in the workplace. It's that men are providing for their families through a job. Yes. And uh, in you know, I think one of the elements of modern feminism has been the emphasis on careers, yeah. uh, that they're really important to human beings' identities, that they're central to human beings' identities, and at the expense of family life. And uh, so what I try to defend uh, over the course of time, this I didn't do in that NatCon speech, but I do in my book, is the idea that, you know, everyone's going to work now, and yeah. uh, uh, that we live a lot longer um, perhaps a lot of people will do volunteer work, but we should try as a political community to encourage women not and men, neither women nor men, to emphasize career as the essential element of their identity. Yes. Uh, I call that the career mystique. Yes. Almost no job is that good. Yes. And uh, whereas, uh, you know, our connection to eternity through, uh, through establishing a nation, through establishing intergenerational families, through peopling heaven um, is is through family life. Yeah. Not through our jobs. Well, and yeah. Well, one of the things that came to mind as I as I was reading this is and maybe I'm going to paraphrase this wrong, but it was uh, something from Chesterton that like one of the lies of of the world is to convince us that everything important is happening out there, out there, rather than actually, he says, all the important stuff is happening in here, in the home. That's where the real like mystery and magic of life is, is, is what a special place that the home is. Do you think he has yeah, that right? I, I, you know, just so much of the ideology of the last 50 years has really been to denigrate uh, the fulfillment and the importance of family life. And, uh, and so I think it's important, you know, if the, uh, if the country is to survive and thrive, and if the, in, if the individual citizens are to, uh, to uh, survive and thrive, 
is really to reemphasize in our education of children the importance of family life. And uh, and I, I am somewhat, uh, how to put this, uh, I, I'm not optimistic about our public schools doing that. Sure. So it has to be done intentionally. Yes. You know, I don't know. Uh, I, we're not exactly the same age. I'm just a little over 50. Um, but I'm, I'm a Midwesterner myself. And you could almost live on the cultural heritage um, when we were growing up in the 70s and 80s. Uh, there is no cultural heritage supporting family life now. Yes. So you have to be very intentional about uh, dealing with your kids and in kind of figuring out what kind of community you're going to uh, invest your time in. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's just one of the facts uh, that we have now, uh, having a broader pro marriage culture is probably essential, but that can only really start if it starts with little inkblot, uh, pro marriage cultures, uh, around the country. Yeah. And I think that idea of the cultural heritage kind of being a no longer, we can no longer eat of its fruits is not a new idea to listeners of this show who have, we've unpacked a book called from Christendom to apostolic mission before, the idea just being like Christendom is is no more. We're kind of in a new we're in a new era, um, truly. One of one of the things um, that you you mention is data on um, you know women delaying delaying or foregoing marriage, uh, marriage family life, having children. I don't know if you have any of that data at the at the tips of your fingers, but if um, if not, maybe just could you speak to the trends broadly, and then also. What do those mean for men being called to duty or not? Yeah, I don't have the data at my fingertips. Uh, I'm a political philosophy guy. The That's numbers right. are natural to me. Um, but you know, the, the the way I think about it is that is that we are probably only right now beginning to have the true fruits of the feminist and sexual revolution uh, because the the people who are mothers now were not raised by mothers who themselves were raised by mothers before the sexual revolution and feminism. Yeah. That is uh, the people who are raising children or having children now don't know anything of the world before feminism and the sexual revolution. Yeah. And, uh, and what that has meant is like the average age for marriage now in America is 30. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, I would say when I was a kid, it was 23. Right. And uh, the uh, the average number of kids or the birth rate is, you know, in the one six area uh, per woman, um, which is, you know, way below replacement and in uh, trending down, trending down significantly. The percentage of the population that is married is at a historic low. And um, and, and what I try to diagnose is a kind of um, uh, a, a bad dynamic which is that as women value independence, like men don't have responsibility. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the prominent ideologies of our time really value independence for women, uh, in the empowerment of women. I think 60% of all college students are women. Okay, I have some data. I have some data. Well done. And, um, <laughs> but, uh, but like, where is the place for men in the world? And uh, I don't think either men or women really value independence. Yes. Um, that is, we're all dependent creatures. And it seems to me that the cultural project is to, is to create institutions where dependence actually redounds to the happiness, benefit, virtue of both men and women. And uh, they can depend on one another and each of them are able to take on duties. 
So as women have become more independent of the family, men have become less responsible. That's kind of the, the broad trend. And, uh, and so I think both those problems have to be fixed at the same time. Well, and you mentioned just a little bit of data about declining birth rates and fertility were below replacement. You don't have to be a Christian to see this stuff. Even Elon Musk, who I don't think is a believer, tweeted recently about how our uh, this is this is a sort of a civilizational threat kind of thing for us. The fact that we're not that we're not having children, and it as you, as you point out, says something about our interdependence or lack thereof. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, the leading edges of this in the world are East Asian countries, where birth rates are really actually almost below one. In Singapore, they're below one. In Korea, they're below one. Um, and they're really they're beginning to see a cratering. Um, you know, population where, uh, where they expect to lose hundreds of thousands of people in total population. These countries don't uh, allow immigration uh, like we do in America. So there's no way to really re re rejuvenate the, the stock of people. Yeah. And obviously none of those are uh, Christian countries. They've been trying to leverage uh, birth rates for a decade and haven't been able to move them. And uh, because it's not an economic question, yeah, you can't treat uh, marriage, family life, having children as an economic question. It's actually a reflection of character. It's what you value. Yes, and uh, you can't change uh, the values of a country simply with those economic tools that are uh, that they've tried. And you know, I, I worry that we will emphasize economic tools instead of uh, tools of values uh, here. Um, a lot of the proposals uh, that have been out, and I've written about this in First Things and a couple other places, uh, you know, they, they emphasize child tax credits and everything. Yep. That's just not where the that's not where the action is. That's not where the problem is. Um, the problem is what women think of as a good woman and what men think of as a good man no longer involves marriage. <laughs> And uh, to the same extent that it didn't in uh, in the past, and it, without changing that, you're not going to change the birth rate. Well, and and you in tracing the these these errors that are prevalent in thought, sometimes I can't help but wonder if maybe these errors have begun with sort of an elite leadership class in a way that has really detrimental f effects on the working class and the middle class. But maybe there's those values aren't quite held. And I want to just share, this is from an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last May, J.D. Vance and a co-writer. They point out, this is survey data, um, a, a survey showing that upper-class Americans are most likely to prefer a work family model, meaning career-centric, uh, in which two earners are relying on childcare. Um, as we could talk about daycare too, but the, the survey data shows that poor working class and middle-class survey respondents prefer a model with one parent working full-time and the other providing at home childcare. So kind of getting into some of the policy stuff, how do you, how do you read this, uh, survey response? And is that, is that a, is it a good thing that we should affirm in the working and middle classes if, if the survey is in fact reflecting reality? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of contradictory evidence out there. The way the way I look at it is that uh, America's middle class, uh, I should say upper class, upper middle class lives uh, about like they did in 1980. Uh, the divorce rate is very low. Uh, they keep their families intact. Uh, and I do believe that uh, there is a kind of social pressure 
that operates within the upper middle class, that keeps families intact and keeps parents kind of doing their responsibility, it would be bad for the kids' careers and for their own reputations if they uh, let their kids down. Um, the reputations among the upper middle class really reinforce responsible uh, parenting. It's not traditional. You know, you can have sex outside of marriage. Abortion is OK. Yeah. Um, but so the, so it's a neo-traditional family. Um, there may be more sharing of work than there was in the 1950s or something. But so they, they live with this kind of free flowing attitude, but they live pretty traditionally. Hmm. The problem is that the free flowing attitude is what is our public philosophy when it comes to marriage. Yes. So that the middle class and especially the lower class, which used to be kind of the source of severe morality, uh, now live according to the loose um, uh, form that the upper middle class claims to live according to. So, um, you know, and feminists write about this. There's a great book uh, by a, a woman named Stephanie Kuntz uh, called uh Marriage, a history of love, a hit, love conquers marriage. Yeah, I forgot the name, but um, uh, near the end of it, she says, "Wow, the upper class has the greatest marriages in the history of the world. Mm. They're egalitarian. Uh, they don't have to last if they don't like them. Uh, they're happy, and you know, as a result, as a result, very much connected to that idea, the lower class have never been in a worse situation." Uh, because we've destroyed the form and expectations of marriage. She's happy for the fulfilling careers that women and men can live in the upper middle class. Um, uh, that, that's what the new form has given birth to. But downstream from that and connected to it is the destruction of marriage among the lower class. And um, so, you know, like you see this all over the place. You know, you live in South Dakota. I'm here in Idaho. The rural parts of our states um, You'll see there's much more crime. There's much more um, in drug use, suicide use, deaths of despair, as they're called. Uh, whereas the upper middle class, like they just skate along, you know, have good 401ks and uh, and yeah. live live happy lives like that. So I do believe there's a huge class cleavage uh, in America. Charles Murray has written about it. Uh, Kay Heimowitz has written about it. Sounds like J.D. Vance has written about it uh, in the Wall Street Journal. He certainly wrote about it in his Hillbilly Elegy book. Yes. And uh, and it also exists, you know, in our urban centers where um, especially black families are just, uh, you know, they barely exist uh, in the urban centers. Uh, but, you know, in the surrounding suburbs, uh, things look like leave it to beaver. Yeah. One of the things you, you point out in your first things article, which is uh, just for listeners, the article is called Sexual Counter-Revolution. It sort of unpacks the sexual revolution and says, we need a counter. We need a counter-revolution. And then you've got some um, policy prescriptions. I know it's a sketch and it's initial. Um, but in your discussion there of divorce, no-fault divorce, one of the things that you, you pointed out that was just so striking um, is you say, across the Western world, women do worse economically after divorce whereas men do worse emotionally, at least for a time. And that's, that's not something that we often think about is like these, there are real consequences for this choice that, you know, we want to be completely free and do whatever you want. But um, we're talking about the working class, um, those who are poorer, it tends to be women who are going to suffer economically following a divorce. Um, you know, what, what might you offer in terms of a counter-revolutionary policy proposal when we're talking about divorce? What can we say there? 
Yeah. So in my book, uh, that's funny. Uh, so in my book, I talk about one of the instances of rollback in divorce law, where uh, in France during the revolution, they initiated basically divorce uh, uh, at will divorce and was the policy of France. It wasn't taken advantage of much outside of Paris, but it was still taken advantage of. And in like 1816, after the restoration, uh, um, one of the king's men, uh, De Lombon is his name, wrote a book called On Divorce, and he rolled back all these uh, these loose divorce laws uh, that France had and really made uh, made divorce almost impossible to get in France. And those laws remain in place for about 80 years. And he, and he basically said, look, the more dissolute the people, the more uh, they want to get divorced, the harsher your laws have to be. <laughs> you just need to have harsh laws and make people stay uh, stay married. married. And I'm like, man, that would be really hard to do. Yeah, uh, It was easy to do in uh, 1816 when, when basically no one was taking advantage of these loose laws. But now, uh, when so many people consider cohabitation equal to marriage and where divorce is quite easily gotten, um, it obviously... Uh, is uh, more of a mass problem that requires more subtle solutions. And uh, what I suggest is um, is different default rules for divorce. Um, women initiate somewhere between, this is also a truth across the Western world, about two-thirds of divorces. And um, because, maybe because it's uh, easy for them to have the benefits of still raising kids, without having a husband who's getting in the way uh, uh, and doing a bad job uh, uh, around. So changing the default rules, perhaps, to having men be the default uh, parent of the child might give women, I think I call it sobering second thoughts about mm. filing for so many of the divorces. Yeah. And, um, and I'm not the first one to come up with that uh, idea. Uh, but, you know, uh, there have to be a, a, a subtle leveraging of the sex differences in order to make uh, marriage more stable from the, from the back end, from the divorce end. And um, and but, you know, I think if we made divorce impossible to get, fewer people would actually marry. Um, they would have a, have other downside consequences. So that's why it's a very subtle and difficult uh, indirect thing. But, you know, the whole idea behind a sexual counter-revolution is that we need to know what our goal is. Yeah. The yes. goal is enduring marriage yes. where they last a long time yes. and fruitful marriage. We can't, if you hide from those, um, if you hide from those goals, you actually can never think about how you might get where you need to go. Right. Um, I say in the article that uh, in the first things article that the prospects for a counter revolution are pretty dismal. Yes. But like we have to think clearly about where you want to get uh, in order to think at all about what kind of policies you might have there. We do so much muddling through or so much defense thinking about what we're after. Yep. is really crucial. Yeah. And I, if we have any of our you know policymakers tuning into this podcast right now, they're like, Chris, what are you talking about? You know, we're not changing our divorce laws. It's just like a political non-starter. We could talk about another issue. Contraception is something you unpack a little bit. And people would say that's a complete political non-starter. But to your point, I mean, this is a, in a sense, it's kind of academic work, but it's not merely just in the realm of thought. We just need to think clearly about the ends that we want and where we're going. And, and I, I, what I appreciate about the First Things article is that you say very clearly, like, what we need to be after is is a renewed public consensus about the goods that are here, 
Um, one of the things that, that you mentioned in terms of pursuing a public consensus along these lines is just the power of public symbols and sort of dedicating months to certain things, um, you know, which I thought was an interesting idea. Set aside, um, you know, April as, as marriage month. And let's, let's talk about this. You know, politicians yeah. do have a bully pulpit. To step back from that, though, to I, I just mentioned this like really contentious societal contraception. What and if our listeners don't know, you're not a Catholic. I thought only Catholics talked about this stuff. Can you tell us like what? Why is what's the the political or policy implication? Why is contraception important to this conversation about the goods of marriage and in a common political life? Yeah, when I was in uh, when I was a younger academic, so back in the aughts, I read this little biography of De Gaulle, and uh, Charles De Gaulle uh, was kind of making a last stand against contraception being legalized in France. This was 67, 68. And, uh, and de Gaulle said something that kind of stuck with me um, in, the, in a newspaper interview. He said, well, all contraception is going to do is it's going to turn men and women into instruments that use one another. And, uh, and I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting thought. And I started kind of, uh, started, well, who thinks that? And because uh, uh, I was a serious Lutheran growing up and uh, still am. And, uh, and I had never heard an argument against contraception here charles de gaulle made it and i found that's how i found john paul ii's work on it and i was like oh those are good arguments i've kind of tried to live according to those things and um so you know i think there are public things that can be done about contraception and uh not making it free <laughs> would be one thing yeah um not emphasizing which i think many of our public schools do the use of contraception and sex education perhaps not even making it the domain of the state to talk about sex education yeah are things that aren't i don't think are non-starters um that is i think there's maybe even a public consensus against some of those things yes and uh but the but like the orientation that you're pointing toward is a discouragement of the use Yes. And um, and a recognition of the cost, not only physical, but emotional and on the strength of marriage uh, for, for from wide use. Look, contraception is part of the feminist movement. It is part of the attempt to weaken family life because family life will be about less. Yes. Um, because you know, because children are the center of the community that marriage is. And if there are no children, then marriage isn't as much of a community. Yeah. And if marriage isn't as much of a community, each individual can pursue his or her own identity. And so they knew what they were doing. And it's difficult to get from, uh, you know, widely wide use of contraception to strong marriages. Name a society where that has happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whereas you, you get a lot of evidence in the other direction. Yes. So um, so I think there are, uh, you know, I th think it's important to recognize that this isn't just about parent rights uh, when we talk about sex education and the use of contraception in public schools. It's about what we're trying to get ultimately out of a, a marital consensus. Yeah, very, very well put. And one of the things that really struck me, too, is you're talking about, well, government making this free and we're getting, whenever we, we see the government sort of putting its thumb on the scales, I, I read this, uh, it was a Janet Yellen study from the late 90s. Whenever the government gets behind contraception, abortion always goes up. So even if you're maybe just invested in like the pro-life movement, too, that's something to be aware of, is that it's, it's sort of contra um, fruitfulness uh, at, at a very basic level. Professor Scott Yenner, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me. And thank you as always, dear listeners, for tuning in. 
Until next time, live well. Live well.